listen to records Smell the cover, read all the verses Tell me about your favorites on vinyl and vision Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl and Vision. Here we are with episode 72, and today's very special guest is Roger Miller. Now, uh, I'm sure that most of you probably know Roger Miller as one of the members of Mission of Burma, which is amazing, uh, obviously a great band and inf- an influential band at that. Um, you know, one of the founders, one of the uh, originators of uh, post-punk. Uh, but Roger has a extensive musical career. Uh, I encourage you to go to his website, which I will provide links in the show notes, uh, rogerclarkmiller.com, which has a massive background of his career uh, from all of everything from the rock bands, you know, uh, Mission of Burma, Trinary System most recently, that's his most recent band, uh, The Moving Parts, Sprout and Layer, and so on and so forth, in addition to his composed music, his uh, compositions, his experimental music with uh, electrical guitars and keyboards and pianos. Um, all of those things are there, and uh, and Roger talks about all of those things on the show, in addition to his uh, his conceptual art, which I was not familiar with most of these things. I, honestly, I was a, a surface-level fa- fan of Roger's, and uh, I was very happy to be able to speak with him about all of these things, in addition to our main topic tonight, Pink Floyd's The Piper at the Gates of, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, Pink Floyd's debut album. I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm just not. I'm not going to mention everything that we discuss in the show, obviously. But it was a wonderful conversation. I think that it's incredibly insightful, uh, not only about Roger's uh, background in music and art, but also uh, his own con- uh, perception of that album and his own interpretations of that album, which I think are incredibly uh, insight- insightful. So stick around and listen up for that. What you have been listening to is uh, Roger's new band, tri- his latest band, Trinary System, a uh, song off of their first full-length album, uh, Lights in the Center of Your Head. The song is called When the Dust Settles. Uh, and, and at the very end of the episode, we will be uh, providing a short clip of another song off that album called Infinity in a Box. Uh, just want to say thank you, folks, for tuning into this episode and... Like we say here at Vinyl Envision, if you can please do all the things you do with the internet, that would be wonderful. You know, like, share, comment, rate, review, and uh, rating and review is the most important and most helpful way to uh, support our show, or any show for that matter, uh, free of charge. Nothing to, to pay, but just write a review and give it five stars wherever it is that you're listening and, uh, and participating and it helps us out it helps get our numbers up in the ratings and so forth and it uh, gains us exposure and that's the, the best thing you can do otherwise you can go to our website psychicstatic.net and uh, do all the things you do there with a financial incentive buy anything off the website and it helps us out financially to keep this thing going so thank you very much folks enjoy the show
<laughs> How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Actually, uh, one of the groups, I'm in the Anvil Orchestra. We do sound film accompaniment. And we played the San Francisco Sound Film Festival at the Castro Theater, which is an amazing theater. Totally fun, but I got COVID. Uh, it, it wasn't that bad. I got kind of a mild cold, and then I, then I had kind of a real cold for about three days. But it just kind of slowed my life down. You know, I had to quarantine, all that kind of shit. Right, right. And when was this? Uh, about two weeks ago. Oh, okay. So you're just about over it? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm out of it now. And, you know, even a couple of days ago, my brain was a little slow. <laughs> I was like, why why can't I read this music? And then, but today I'm in pretty good shape, so. Oh, good, good to hear. Have you ever had it before or was this the first time? First time, like the Omicron seems to be the most contagious because I was in Amsterdam with the Anvil Orchestra premiering our new score last November and that was during Delta and, you know, we're having dinner with Russians, Israelis and Brits and Dutch. And, you know, I got nothing, but you just go to San Francisco and you're fine. <laughs> I love San Francisco. I love the Castro. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't, um, I didn't realize what you had been working on most recently. Because um, I, I did do some research, obviously. I, I discovered that you uh, are a composer. Uh, you work with a di- bunch of different uh, orchestras, would you call them, I guess? That's a yeah, appropriate chamber, term. Chamber groups or like little organizations, yeah. I yeah. Mean, Actually, just now I had like about half an hour before your, uh, before this Zoom, and I was working on. I have a composition that was supposed to have premiered last, like two years ago, but COVID just it was supposed to be the beginning of March, March fifteenth, and that's when the entire place shut down. And it was, uh, oh yeah, with the ICA Boston, Mass Mocha, and the Warhol Museum, and it's 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 called Music for String Quartet and Two Turntables. And I made a record, which once you put the needle down, it plays for the entire 15 minutes, and it's all record noise that I've organized, and the string quartet plays to that. And then I have another record that I kind of scratch along with, not in a traditional scratchy sense, but I interact with the live quartet, integrating it into the turntable, and I'm, I think I'm going to be recording that this summer, which is really exciting. Oh, wow. And long Long overdue, is that what you're going to say? Yeah, as long as we're doing, supposed to be recorded at one of our concerts, you know, like two and a half years ago. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, that, that's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, like, um, I, I didn't realize uh, until recently how how um, proficient you were musically. I mean, obviously, you're pretty astute. You're uh, you read uh, music first and foremost, which is pretty, pretty astounding to me because I'm an, uh, a self-taught person myself. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, like, yeah, you you do all of this chamber music. Uh, you can you play a number of different instruments, correct? Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm mostly just a second here. I had to get rid of something. Um, but mostly, I'm a piano player and a guitarist. But I I was mostly a bass player, like in my first band, my psychedelic band, Sprout and Lair, from 1969 to 1970, which we recorded an album at the end of my 12th grade, and it's been released on three different labels. Third Man's going to put it out next year. Oh, really? Cool. Very Sid Barrett, Piper at the Gates of Dawn-influenced record. That, that one is screaming the Sid Barrett influence. But I was a bass player for that, primarily. Oh, so okay. I was going to I sometimes sit in on, with Cornette. Uh, we're playing, Trinary System is playing with Mini Beast, and I'm going to blow some horn with the Beast. It's like that. Oh, that's that awesome. Always makes me happy. <laughs> Have you played with them before? Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, both guitar, mostly cornet, 
we call it trumpet, but really I have this $15 cornet that I bought in 1972 and I've never bought another one. And it's the one I always play. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, have you sat in with like mini beast before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That was, so, yeah. Yeah. And besides playing on mission Burma records and trinary system records, but I, I have sat in with mini beast. It's always killer. Yeah. I, I think I add a slight, uh, funk dance edge to it like i kind of did it you know like kind of a horny kind of thing and then i go off into a miles or an, or a you know noise out of the horn but yeah you know, i don't play very often so i'm not technically a master or anything but i can pull it off sure sure well, that sounds great though i mean like uh their music is good for it and uh, the band itself you know obviously uh, an improvisational based band i mean you can kind of put anything in there i guess and it'll be it'll work out yeah yeah, and how is it to, to play with Peter, like after all these years, like uh, after uh, Burma's disbanded? It's like not doing anything. It's just like hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> There's no problem whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after Burma broke up, I played trumpet and keyboards on Volcano Sun's records. He played on my record, Roger Miller O, which was on Forced Exposure. He and I improvised a couple of tracks. He played bass. Hmm. I think he played record player on one. Uh, so I've always I've always interacted with him very easily. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, let me see here. So uh, I, let's uh, let's try to start at the beginning, maybe. Uh, I mean, I've looked at your website, so I know a little bit about your history. I see that you've grown you grew up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm-hmm. That's where you were born and raised. Yeah, and that was uh, there were two things that were really cool about that. One, it was a liberal college town, so my schooling wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my father studied fish that live in the desert. He was an ichthyologist. He studied fish at the U of M. So every summer we'd go out west into the desert looking for like obscure springs and creeks that we would collect fish in. So it was a real, it was a kind of an unusual childhood. Yeah. To say. And then by the time when the Beatles hit, which I was in sixth grade, you know, I'd already been taking piano lessons, but once the Beatles hit, you know, I was of that generation that when the Beatles came on and they played, I want to hold your hand. Before that, I was just a kid. After that, I was a rocker. Like someone had put a magnet to my head and everything was different. And here I still am. Yeah, so, right. Was that yeah. the uh, Ed Sullivan show? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, that did it for a lot of people, right? Yeah, totally. And so that totally changed me into rock. And then, you know, I was in ninth grade. Between ninth and tenth grade was the summer of love. You know, I saw the Grateful Dead play their first show in Ann Arbor. You know, Iggy Pop went to my high school. I saw the MC5 maybe 20 times. Hmm. Uh, So it was like just an amazing uh, time period for that kind of psychedelic mind expansion. Yeah, yeah. And you being a teen, I mean, you're fairly, that's fairly young for for getting into that type of music and those types of shows, I guess. Yeah, uh, in the summer of 67, I put my first band together, which my brothers were in. It was a five-piece, and I mean, I was in ninth grade going to 10th grade, mostly ninth grade, and we're doing, you know, Shapes of Things by the Yardbirds, stuff from the first 13th Floor Elevators album, Kinks, Hendrix, Seeds. Hmm. So we're we're working on stuff like that, and uh, yeah, and that led, like, a few years later to Sprout and Lair, and it was my first psychedelic, bona fide psychedelic rock band. Oh, cool. And so, like, uh, what was what was music like in the house for you? Like, what, what did you grow up around? 
Well, my dad was very musical. He took piano, or he didn't take it. He was a piano, he studied piano in college. Mm-hmm. And he had a choice between studying and becoming a pianist or doing something else to make a living. And I think his, his mom, who I never met, uh, convinced him that being a professional piano player is probably not the way to make a living. You know? I mean, he played like, you know, Chopin, Beethoven. He preferred the classical stuff, but he also liked, you know, we had the Rite of Spring, the Firebird Suite, you know, Stravinsky and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. and Dvorak in the house. So we, you know, go to sleep at night and he'd put on, you know, Sanson or Dvorak or, you know, Stravinsky. So it was a very musical family. And my dad liked the fact that I played piano. So when I when I was uh, you know after I graduated from high school I'd come home stoned I'd sometimes just sit down and play through you know like play my own stuff improvising and classical stuff and he really enjoyed it so I was you know hanging out with my dad and he didn't know I was stoned but he didn't what did it matter you know yeah just, that's cool just a kid, you know? yeah as long as you're you're playing I mean obviously uh, he was appreciative of of music and being you being able to to perform anything that matter I mean like. Uh, writing your own material if not just kind of like improvisational and then obviously you know uh, pulling at his ho- his own heartstrings by info um incorporating some classical elements right yeah yeah he liked that and my parents came, actually came to see mission of burma play uh at the second chance in ann arbor in 1980 or 81 and i remember afterwards my mom said i didn't understand the music but you and clint had great stage presence and I remember being exceptionally ripped that night on stage. <laughs> we were just going, going completely nuts. And mom thought it was great. So, and my dad, he really liked the musical stuff. And he went to see bird songs of the Mesozoic and my maximum electric piano, like more experimental keyboard stuff. And he, he just loved it. You know, he was in the audience whooping it up like, you know, yeah. as if like a 30 year old or 20 year old or whatever. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, so, so your parents were always very supportive of you, huh? My dad was, uh, mom thought that music you shouldn't make a career out of music you should do things like study fish that live in the desert <laughs> that sounds like your dad's mother <laughs> it does but she couldn't control me and my two brothers Flair and ben are also musicians and uh i've played yeah. a lot of music with them and uh yeah so she couldn't stop us unfortunately for her but fortunately for me yes very fortunate for you um so uh, and like so, music around that uh, house growing up mostly classical, I guess, huh? Uh, nothing more than that, really. Well, you know, at sixth grade is when the Beatles hit and everything changed. But up until then, it was classical, a little bit of uh, you know Oklahoma, like musicals they had. Oh yeah, and, and you would sometimes listen to fifties rock and roll. That didn't affect me that much. I just remember being a kid and we'd listen to you know, Twix 12 and 20, and, you know, and I knew songs like uh, Chuck Berry, but it didn't mm. affect me. You know, I was probably too young, but I was 12 when the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan, and literally it was like before the Beatles and after, I can divide my life up before the Beatles and after the Beatles. And yeah. Like that two and a half, two and a half minutes, I was a different person. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, to- totally crazy. Yeah, and so I see a bunch of records behind you. Uh, what what is your relationship with vinyl records these days? Um, I keep what I like. I'm not a collector, um, but I keep the records that I really like. And I, I play CDs and I play stuff online too. But I like records. Uh, Deb, who I live with and have lived with for a long time, we both like records. You know, we put on 
you know, Miles or Eric Dolphy out to lunch. Yeah. She really likes shellac. She loves mini bees. So, oh, cool. Yeah. She's got good taste. She does. She like, you know, the funniest thing with her was when I met her, she was working at this place called Arts at the Armory. It was like an arts venue. And I was playing there, accompanying some, some music, some film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she had never heard of Mission of Burma. And I thought, this is so cool. I've got a girlfriend. She really likes me, and she's never heard of Mission of Burma. When I played it for her, she goes, wow, that's really good stuff. <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's the, that's, you can't ask for more than that. Yeah, that is pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's like, a, it's a testament to, to her really liking you. It wasn't just like, oh, I get to be with the guy that was in the band that I liked. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was no precedent for it. She just actually thought that I was okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> Plus, she really liked the music, too, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, I mean, obviously does have good taste. I mean, you know, uh, just from those few bands you've mentioned, it's just like, that's that's nice to to have a lady that can appreciate that type of, that type of music, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, like, what was the, what was the, like, the first record that you remember, like, buying yourself? I Want to Hold Your Hand. I saw her standing there at 45, and then Meet the Beatles, the first Beatles album, then She Loves You, and then... I think the next one I bought was probably like the second Dave Clark Five record, the first Kinks record, hmm. and more Animals, Greatest Hit, I think it was. And then from there, it just snowballed, you know. And then things changed pretty quickly from British Invasion to like by the time I was in ninth grade, the first album had come out. You know, hmm. amazing, amazing record. Uh, yeah. You know, like... My generation, it didn't have a guitar solo, it had a bass solo, you know. And I was a bass player and I played French horn, and this guy was a bass player and he played French horn, you know, and whistle. Uh, and then the first Elevators record, you know, it was the first record with the word psychedelic. They were the first band to use the word psychedelic. And I, when I heard You're Gonna Miss Me that summer on, you know, the radio station, it was a hit. Uh, you know, that pri- I didn't know it at the time, but it was that primal howl of Rocky Erickson that really affected me and I bought the album and it just completely I was gung-ho on the elevators hmm. were my favorite band until Paper at the Gates of Dawn showed up yeah okay well considering you, you just mentioned that album that's the album that we are supposed to be talking about oh, um miracle. so going right into it so right from 13th 13th floor elevators you got into Pink Floyd uh, it was a little more, slightly more convoluted than that, but from the okay. elevators, I really liked uh, the album After Bathing at Baxter's by the Jefferson Airplane. Around then, I was starting to smoke weed, like 60, fall of 67. It was an excellent weed album, After Bathing at Baxter's. It just kind of moves along, and it's, you're in a half dream state the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and then a bunch of bands really started pushing things around then, like the first Silver Apples album. Oh, okay. Uh, Oscillations on it. And it was a band that was, it was a drummer and a guy who played electronic instruments, like oscillators. It was like, where did this come from? And my interest tended to be, once I got into it, the more different it was, the more interesting it was. You know, sometimes I got carried away with that, but hmm. it was pretty, pretty darn interesting. Uh, you know, we really liked the first Soft Machine album when Wyatt was still in the band. Uh, and around that time, I guess it was the band that I had in the summer of 67. Might, might have been, yeah, so it must have been later 67. The guitarist 
played for me Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and he thought that there's a bass line in Chapter 24 that Roger Waters played. Yep. Dun, 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 dun. It's like his only bass line in the whole record almost. And he said, you probably, don't you think that's cool? Because I was a bass player and I wasn't very impressed. You know, like I could play that, you know. Yeah. You know, I was already a better bass player than Roger Waters, a really a very good bass player. Uh, as far as I was concerned. Uh, but so it took me a little while to really beam in on uh, because when I liked the elevators, I hadn't actually smoked weed yet or done any of that kind of countercultural thing, which started to happen in the fall of 67 and more full steam ahead in 68. Mm-hmm. The time of Saucer Full of Secrets, both those Piper the Gates of Dawn and Saucer Full of Secrets were kind of returning. We would return to those as the records that were kind of me and my brothers that we liked. But the time where Piper at the Gates of Dawn became my lodestone. Uh, you know, the summer of 67, I'd had that band that did, you know, pretty progressive psychedelic rock music. Then I joined this band. Then I started my own kind of Neo Cream, Neo Hendrix, you know, single riffs with chords in the chorus kind of stuff. And, you know, I could write those songs and we sound like a grade B Hendrix cream kind of shit, you know. It wasn't really great, but it was a step up, and I was writing the song. Hmm. And then I wrote a song, and the song is In the Sun, which is on the Sprout and Lair album with Magnetic Fields Disrupted, and it's a really unusual riff. And it didn't fit with this band that I had, this kind of neo-cream band. The riff, they couldn't figure out how to play it right, and I was really frustrated. And then... uh my two, uh, you'll hear me say this over and over again. My two brothers, Lawrence and Benjamin, they're twins, and they're two years younger than me. The three of us together went through this musical journey, like, yeah, more or less. And uh, our parents went out square dancing. And I don't know where we got this idea, but we said, We're gonna get stoned and we're just gonna jam on this equipment that my other band had. And we tape recorded it for some reason. We had like a you know was probably like three and three quarter speed, tiny little seven inch reel of tape, uh, mm-hmm. three inch reel of tape, sorry. Huh. And uh, we improvised and it was like nothing any of us had ever done before. It was just, you know, it wasn't just the weed because we'd been smoking weed before, like for over a year. It was just something about our brains being ready to do this expanding thing or hearing enough expanded stuff around us that we felt free to do it. Hmm. Uh, and we were just riffs would mutate out of anywhere. It wasn't like blues rock. It had nothing to do with blues rock. And when we were done with the session and listened to it, we realized that the closest thing in the world was interstellar overdrive. Like it, that instrumental section where things just pulse along. There's a, there's a beat, and, but then, you know, keyboards and guitars would fuse and form and then fall apart and something else would come to the fore. And that's what it was doing with us as a rock trio hmm. and after that Piper of the Gates of Dawn was the godhead for me at that point you know we liked that we liked Sauceful Secrets I'd written some kind of Sauceful Secrets kind of dreamier kind of piano pieces you know the Wizard King or something rather or Hilltop a couple songs Fall of 68 that were kind of a starting towards me finding my voice hmm. but this was like completely different this was we were way inside it. What we weren't just looking at the ideas; the ideas were part of our lives. Right, right. 
So now it's funny. I was just thinking about this because you were mentioning some of the bands that you were kind of getting turned on to some of the stuff that was leading up to getting into Pink Floyd, you know, 13 floor elevators, silver apples. Who was showing this music to you? How did you get turned on to that stuff? We lived in Ann Arbor. It was a real asset. And Detroit was like, you know, Russ Gibb, you don't probably don't know who Russ Gibb is or the Grandy Ballroom or the Easttown Ballroom. But yeah. if you lived in Detroit, those those are legendary people. It was the equivalent of the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West, the Grandy Ballroom. Every band. Okay. Right. I, mean, I saw the airplane there. Blade Ron, I saw Captain Beefheart on the Lick My Decals off tour. Pink Floyd, Hawkwind, all, all those bands. Alice Cooper. So in around, I guess it was probably 68, is when radio stations started like college stations always did unusual stuff but radio became there was some aor album oriented rock at that point mm-hmm. it was radical not then it later became not very radical but they would play the non-hits and so i would i was able to just by listening to the radio i remember hearing the silver apple song oscillations like oh my god i have to get this album you know or mm-hmm. or you know you'd see on tv the crazy world of arthur brown you know pretty much an over-the-top record, but, you know, no, there's no guitars on it. You know, drums, mm. organ, bass, and then it was orchestrated with strings and trumpets, so it appealed to my classical elements, but it had complete this kind of mania of relentless creative activity, which I was really into. Uh, so that there was a mixture of that. We had lots of friends. My, my brothers had friends. I had friends. I was in high school. People would talk you know, and bring over records to our house. We were kind of a, a meeting place, my parents' house. You know, people would bring over records all the time. Right, right. So we, were, we heard everything that was going on. It was really, uh, really incredibly magical time, like 67 through 70. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some great, amazing albums came out in that year and in that that period. I mean, yeah. you know, if you think about it, just like Jimi Hendrix and Cream and... What else? Whatever. Obviously, you know, you're listening to Silver Apples and, and 13 Floor mm-hmm. Elevators and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, people don't talk about Procol Harum very much or they d- dismiss them. But like Salty Dog, that's just an amazing, amazing record. Hmm. Again, it's, and again, that appealed for my classical sense of growing up with classical music. But, I, you know, we also, you know, I saw the Stooges on their record release party for their first record. So... I was there too. Like I also like the Stooges as well as you know hearing you know Gary Brooker sing a salty dog with a string orchestra about right. sailing ships. You know I was just as yeah. happy to hear about Iggy complaining about 1969 or complaining about 1970. Right, right. Well, so it's funny though because like I mean looking back at it now, you know obviously we've had all this time and then uh, history is kind of like you know really kind of made things out of certain people and certain acts like uh, the Stooges being mentioned are, I mean, you talk about them now and they're heralded as like, you know, one of the, uh, you know, uh, predecessors of post-punk, uh, proto-punk. And, uh, but if you, th- you know, listen, look at their history uh, when they were first coming out, that first record of theirs, I mean, it wasn't really liked very well. It was it certainly wasn't uh, revered in the way that it is now. Not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how was that for you? I mean, like, you know, being there, I mean, like, it's obviously you liked it. And so you're obviously one of these, like, um, for some reason, influencer came into my mind. as like, that's not what it was back then. But uh, one of these people that, that understood it and appreciated it, even though it wasn't popular. Yeah, I mean, it, we were in Ann Arbor and Iggy and the Stooges were in Ann Arbor. So everybody in Ann Arbor knew I want to be your dog. 
like yeah. that was but in a way <clears throat> by then i was already re writing pretty sophisticated music in sprout and layer like you know we would this is kind of a cliche for me to say now but when my dad heard that this kind of psychedelic rock music that incorporated a lot of classical experimentalism. He encouraged us to go to see the University of Michigan new music concerts. So mm -hmm. it was not uncommon that we would see the MC5 in the afternoon and then go to the University of Michigan and see like, you know, Stockhausen or Penderecki at night. So, and we'd be stoned in the afternoon, it's done at night, which, you know, ultimately isn't as important as we make it out to believe that it is. Yeah. But, but, you, but particularly if you're stoned, things start to blend together you know your ability to dis discriminate gets blurry sure and so to me you know penderecki and the stooges sure you know why not and that le leads to you know mission in burma as far as i'm concerned you know? yeah yeah that's crazy huh um so I was thinking about it, like, uh, so So the record you chose for tonight for us to talk about was uh, Pink Floyd's Piper, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which um, you already told me about, like, when you first heard it, but, like, what what was it about it that you think, like, made you wanted to choose that record for, for this uh, show today? Right, well, again, like, after that first session with me and Laren Ben, where we recorded this improvs, we were, like, we thought we were doing something super radical and it was pretty ra radical some people thought we sounded like the mc5 doing starship that kind of thing because you know we'd seen the mc5 15 20 times but it was more the piper at the gates of dawn and also i mean what it was is that he wasn't playing blues licks you know the all of interstellar overdrive or astronomy domine there's a hint of blues in there but it's just as influenced by Stockhausen or Sun Ra, you know, whether he saw Sun Ra or not, I don't know, but he, uh, Sid was a fan of AMM, the, the very super experimental band, and it was not very popular, but uh, in, mm -hmm. in England, in London. And so the idea that he would play music that wasn't blues based and any sound you wanted was important, like on the song Lucifer Sam, which is it's kind of a, almost like a, a spy theme or related to Batman or something. It's got that kind of dark, creepy quality. Yeah. If it wasn't for the lyrics, it would be kind of goofy, but the lyrics are really amazing. But in, in it, there's these sound, guitar sounds that are, you don't even know they're, what they're made from, like they're scraping of strings or a piece of cloth being ripped. Yeah. And I mean, I still don't, don't know what they are. Like I could sit around, sit down with you or somebody who's really knowledgeable and say, okay, we're going to figure out what every one of these sounds are. And we probably couldn't do it. I mean, the other low stone as an electric guitarist for me is Hendrix, but that's, it's almost so obvious that I don't even want to say it, but, <laughs> but it's a fact. Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, his use of feedback and is, is just my, you know, the fact that he could wrestle that stuff that you weren't supposed to do. Again, bo both Barrett and he and, and you know, the free jazz guys, which I became familiar with a little while later, you know, they take the honks and the squeaks and they'd organize them. All the sounds that you weren't supposed to get out of your instrument, they would turn it into music. And Barrett was doing that and Hendrix was doing that, hmm. you know, with the controlling the feedback. And he would, you know, he'd really work it so that he would make that which was rejected into something like, you know, a creative masterpiece. Right. Right. And yeah, Piper at the Gates of Dawn is probably the most detached from that that it could be. Yes, yes, it to totally was. I mean, uh, 
but let's say Townsend, like on the first, uh, on the American, it's the only album I know there's the My Generation. I mean, he would do like, part of his solo would just be switching the toggle switch back and forth. Oh, right. know, and, and then he would hit the guitar and scrape the string. So he was actually doing some fairly innovative stuff before maybe they found their voice and became more of a rock and roll band. Hmm. In was like a predecessor to Hendrix, but Barrett, yes, to bring it back to Barrett, I apologize for getting a little too far afield. But yeah, Barrett, that was his mode. Like that's what he did was make those sounds like a, the song Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk which is the only Roger Waters song on the first album. It's just a jam. And the bass line just goes, let's go over and over. And the reason it's so good is that at that point, Nick Mason played really, like he was really energetic. Like by the, by Sauce Full of Secrets, he got that lazy, real slow fill that he never stopped playing ever since. When he was a little more ramped up, you know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And so he and Waters would just hold it down. It would be between Nick Mason, I'm sorry, Rick Wright, Richard Wright, the keyboard player, and Barrett would just be like these two animals, like meeting and falling apart and you know, an ocean and a volcano, you know. I mean, that's what it sounded like to my, you know, stoned out high school mind. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so um, now we, we, I'll probably mention something about this later on, but uh, in listening to some of the, the Burma catalog, Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if I hear it as clearly as I hear it in Trinary System, uh, your your you know your most recent uh, rock band project. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as guitar playing uh, or and sounds and guitar sounds are are concerned, um, like I don't hear as close of a connection to the Sid Barrett uh, of like Piper at the Gates of Dawn style. Uh, was there something else that you think was uh, was more of an influence on on the Burma period of your songwriting? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting. Like my band Sprout and Lair was a very psychedelic rock band, though sixty nine and seventy, and it was very Sid Barrett influenced. If you ever heard the album, it's called "With Magnetic Fields Disrupted." You would you would right off the bat go, "Oh yeah, these guys were total Barrett." It's some of the songs are almost like Barrett esque knockoffs, uh, but they're not bad. But when it, but those kind of ideas with Burma, with then it was, with the Sprout and Lair, it was filtered through Psychedelia, which was Barrett's mode. Mm-hmm. When I took those same energies, but filtered it through punk rock, which Barrett was not, you know, you don't think of Barrett as being an aggressive guy who's yelling at people from the stage. It's yeah. not, that's not really his thing. He's more of a total introvert. And uh, so I filtered those ideas through, through the punk rock aesthetic. You know, I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not, I mean, I love, I love the Stooges and I love Ron's playing on it, but his playing never influenced me. It was way too straightforward for me, mm-hmm. but like on, uh, on the album Versus, which is, or I consider to be our best album. I, there's, I do a three kind of epic guitar solos on there. Uh, Einstein's Day, which is plays scales, but it's very unlike Barrett, but, uh, but Weatherbox, and uh, Fun World. Fun World is all harmonics. Like I never once press the string to the neck. Hmm. In Weatherbox, I don't do the same thing. I just hold the guitar silent and I walk, I just wave back and forth in front of the amp. And so the feedback by the position of the pickup goes. So hmm. 
two of those solos, the more radical ones, I wasn't even pressing my fingers on the guitar note. Which, which is kind of contrary to punk rock. Like you're supposed to be really physical and this was like super abstract. But yeah. the music was so physical that you didn't really notice that, I don't think. But those, those kind of ideas to me came from both Hendrix and Barrett. Uh, and, you know, Fred Frith later on, his school of guitar playing was also really interesting. But uh, I mean, to me, those are Barrett-esque filtered through punk rock. I mean, they don't really sound like Barrett. Right. And I would say that, uh, and we haven't talked about Barrett's lyrics, but a lot of his lyrics are very dreamlike. And, you know, in Burma, I mean, some of those lyrics, they're, they're like, you, you transformed my life into a dream. Like at the bottom of the well, there's a seed, there's a pit. It's like, that could be a dream. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's from the song Fun World. So so that, okay. that element, that element from Barrett, where it was a mixture of childlike innocence and I was I'm kind of a late bloomer like I'm 70 now but I don't really act like it which is working to my advantage at present sure. but I was a little late out of the box uh, other places so Barrett's childishness really appealed to me uh, at that time like you know fantasy and but behind any of those fantasies there's the dark fantasy too and that's you know like fairy tales aren't really as as chipper and sunny as you think they're if you analyze fairy tales that's oh yeah in all of them so and and barrett songs like lucifer sam or astronomy domine other songs they become more dreamlike and which is very suitable towards being stoned or tripping you know because when you're in a psychedelic state it's like you're dreaming out loud you're dreaming as you exist in the world that's how i perceive the psychedelic state hmm. okay uh, and that's that's what Barrett was like. And that I took a lot of that, like my lyrics in Mission of Burma are very, you know, most people would complain, like, I can't make any sense out of this shit. But it's more like dream dream stuff. And it's the same, there's more of that still in primary system too, that kind of uh the Bar the Barrett, the words he used. But I, I got off track because we were talking about the guitar. Part. No, that's okay, because we're we're gonna get into that actually uh as well. Um I actually do a lot of uh, lyrical an analysis these days because of this show, which is a little strange for me because I've never, it's never been a big thing for me before. But um, so we'll, we'll talk about some of that. Um, we might as well go ahead and, and, and start to try to tackle it. Um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, originally released on uh, August 5th, 1967. By the way, do you have the UK release or the American release? Both. Oh, okay. So, because yeah, the track listing is a little different. Yeah, yeah. The mono one, when it came out, I think I have the mono one. Uh, and then I saw Pink Floyd in fall of 68 for the Sauce Full of Secrets tour at a, at a club called The Fifth Dimension, where I uh, did psychedelic lettering so I could get into a lot of shows for free. And I, they kind of blurted on Sauce Full of Secrets whether Barrett was in the band or not. Because I couldn't see them before, and it was, it was the Saucerful of Secrets kind of stuff, which was later more documented on Uma Goomba. It was all kind of long and spacey and broad, and I was expecting more of that kind of crazed mania of like some of the some of the compressed songs on Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Hmm. And uh, but I heard they did Astronomy Dominate, which is not on the American Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Right. Next day, I was downtown. I was at the record store. 10th grade, probably. And I heard that song 
they were playing that, you know, they were playing records. And they said, oh my fucking God, they're playing the song I just heard last night that I had never heard before. And I went up and that's when I saw the English Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which had three different songs, Flaming, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Maybe there's only two different ones. There might be another one on there. The you know, track list is completely different. Yeah, right. So, so, um, so we're, we're going we're gonna to cover the original UK release. Okay. Right? Just so that you know. Let's let's go ahead and start getting into it, and we'll start with the first song, uh, "Astronomy Domine." Descending chromatic descending line, very similar to uh, Interstellar Overdrive. You know, dee, 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 dee. Uh, mm-hmm. So it is totally like a Barrett theme, which is also in Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk or Power Tone. It's in Power Tone, sorry. Uh, and it starts off with you know that organ, like little beacons from outer space, and and you know the guys talking, listing like planets and gods, and then the whole thing erupts and. Uh, no, it's just because. And what, what I liked about it is that, you know, you're talking about outer space, and then then later on, he's talking about the water, the green, limpid water underground, like going in caves underground. And he right. managed to tie the outside and the inside together in just this astonishingly beautiful way, and it ends up on the D major chord. Like he resolves it in a peaceful fashion. Huh. Um, yeah. How weird. Burma, Burma covered that. Uh, when he died, we played that, and uh, when we played it in Brooklyn, the guy said he cried when we played it, and we played it really, really well because I was channeling Barrett. I was singing it and playing all the Barrett riffs, and so yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's like really something. That's cool. Um, so this song, I mean, uh, let's see. So, so just trying to analyze the song a little bit. Uh, Domine. Uh, it's kind of uh, Latin for the word Lord. So this kind of this sense of um, I don't know this this larger than life kind of uh, song about space in general, but mm-hmm. uh, but there's a mention of Dan Dare in one verse. Do you ever catch that? Yeah, yeah, and I found out later it's a comic strip. There's like a outer space comic strip in England that we never. Yeah, had. yeah, yeah. It was a British sci-fi uh, science fiction comic hero created by illustrator Frank Hampson. Uh, so it seems to me that it's possible that in an acid haze Barrett may have focused intently on this comic and the relationship to planet stars and space and so forth. Um, it could be. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I was reading uh, a little bit about his, of his, um, of his biography and some, there was some, co- some quotes from some friends of his, some close friends, uh, childhood friends that had said that uh, they would have like these, you know, acid parties essentially, and that they would get re- essentially you would just really focus on a topic, like one thing. And like, I guess there's a tribute to this on, uh, is it the cover of a madcap laughs where he's, where it's Sid sitting in a room that's mostly bare with just a prune and an orange, is it, or something? I'm not sure exactly what it is. I brought the album when it came out and in the back, his, his girlfriend's in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. But so it was some, some story about him focusing on these pieces of fruit oh, and like, like just kind of, so deep into it just kind of like a like 
mesmerized by them as like seeing them as planets and stuff like that like sure can, yeah so i think i've uh, already asked you a little bit about this but uh where do you find or what do you look for look to for inspiration for songwriting uh i don't know yeah <laughs> it mean, just kind of comes out of nowhere a riff shows up you know i'm always playing guitar and a riff will show up or i, or I, I might think you know trinary system because that's my band now it's like well we need something like this like we need a song that's more of something like this and then i start messing around till i find it uh yeah so do you start you start with the uh, music and then lyrics come after the fact it's always music first but i also you know i keep a journal and i i'm a writer as well and uh i'll write down little phrases that amuse me like i lead a modular life that's just a fact about my my life is modular like my my deb who i live with she has a very rigid she goes to work and she works till here and she's like well today i have off and i go okay i'll just my life is modular so i can just push this over here and i can adapt here most of my things that i do unless i'm playing a show or have you know have to travel somewhere if I, you know it's modular like right now it's not i have to meet with you at this time no you don't have to you could have blown me off that's <laughs> but uh but I, I get what you mean because i mean you live an artist's lifestyle so it's just like you're a creative and so and you do whatever you create is kind of the way you live yeah yeah and so so i would just like when i need lyrics sometimes i'll just go through my journal and i saw that that line i lead a modular life which i probably wrote down some evening after a few beers thing this is funny and that mm -hmm. became the theme for one of the songs on trinary system lyrically right so and also i mean sometimes i just start thinking about stuff but uh lyrics are, the, are harder than music it's easy to come up with riffs it, to make the words not sound stupid is is more difficult right right and so and um well so is there anything that you can attribute to like your lyrical styling or or the words that you choose to write again i would say uh barrett had a lot to do with that uh i'll often go to dreams uh for inspiration just to get the, it's kind of like psychedelic like like i mentioned earlier i believe that being stoned or tripping when you're in that kind of psychedelic state, you're dreaming out loud. As you live, you are dreaming simultaneously. Hmm. And and so this way, I can get that same kind of effect without taking psychedelic drugs. Oh, okay. So you don't take any more? Any, uh, you don't take them anymore? LSD and stuff like that, no, not a long time. I'll sometimes smoke some weed. Oh, okay. But yeah. I've actually long. never done any uh, hallucinogenics. I mean, just mushrooms, but I don't consider that to be like real hallucinating. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I did mushrooms a couple of times. It was very relaxing. It made me feel very calm. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with that. But that's the thing. I've never had one of those major psychedelic trips like using acid or LSD or anything like that. Mm -hmm. it, whatever. It's, I think it was important for Western culture to go through that. I'm not sure if it's important now. You know, like things change. It, yeah. It, it's important with the, what the culture needs. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid it's going to break my brain at this point. There is something like it's a younger person's job because it takes a lot out of you. Like, you know, when you're tripping, you take you you drop acid four o'clock and you're up till five o'clock the next morning. Mm. And you've got an entire day where your your sleep patterns are off, and you've also kind of exhausted yourself by going through 
it's a lot of intensity to go through a, like a psychedelic experience. And so you're kind of like burnt out and it takes a couple of days to really assimilate and put yourself back together for it in a way, you know? Yeah. Shoot. Miss my window. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure your life is just as rich. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I guess so. I mean, but now I can't compare it. I can't, I can't say if that's true or not, but it's well, all right. Well, since I've taken LSD, how would I know if I didn't take LSD? Yeah, I don't, it's one of those things, huh? I don't know. Uh, Maybe, maybe one day, I don't know. Who knows? I'm still kind of young. You are. All right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to the next song, Lucifer Sam. Lucifer Sam, Siam Cat. Always a king by your side. Again, I, I think I'm, well, I mean, it's, so that's, that's more like a traditional song of the era in the same way that like uh, Hendrix or Cream, like let's say Sunshine of Your Love. It was a riff dun, 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 that just played over and over again. And then you, the chorus has chords. Now in Lucifer Sam, it's just that riff, but it goes through it and then it goes, that cat's something I can't explain. You finally get the chords, C to D. Uh, so in a way, it's the most traditional song on the record, except it's just so out there. You know, it's so it's so unusual. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I know it's about a specific cat uh, that he called Loose for Sam. But, you know, he's talking about witches and, you know, and I'm sure he's projecting all these things at the same time. You know, like he's, it's all, you know, in the psychedelic experience, things, different types of meanings merged together or like dreams like in a dream you can have really outlandish things that don't belong together in a dream and they make sense in the dream and again it's kind of like the psychedelic experience oh yeah yeah and there's a lot of that on this record yeah a lot of that a lot of those things you know he kind of plays what you might almost think of as being regular riffs but he doesn't and they just become sounds going you know there's more like uh you know you poke a hole in consciousness and this other stuff comes out from the other side. That would be like a, a Jungian kind of statement there. Mm. But the danger is if you live too far on the other side, you don't find your way back. And that's what happened to Barrett. Right. That, that's yeah. the truth is, uh, is, is getting a balance. Right. Uh, so this song, Lucifer Sam, uh, originally titled Percy the Rat Catcher. So what I what I discovered was that I consider the song actually to be quite a bit of lyric, lyrical genius going on here when you really break it down. Um, from what I've learned in research, there's two major interpretations of the song uh, where people have said that the song is kind of as simple as him writing about his cat. Uh, or that um, he's, it's just as simple as him writing about his girlfriend at the time, uh, Jenny Spires. Hmm. Um, which gentle. Yep, there we go. Yeah, I mean, like lyrically, if you want to, if you really like, like analyze the words, there's a kind of what you were just mentioning, how like it's this blending of things. Like, yes, he may have started writing off writing the song, like kind of just, you know, picking off of his surroundings and seeing his cat and start getting into that. But then there's subconsciously there's this thing about his girlfriend who, you know, I guess maybe they they were having a falling out at the time or kind of like slowly you know, separating 
Um, so there's a little bit of that awkwardness of like this relationship with this woman that he's in or, or her, there's some, I can't remember the words for the life of me right now, but you're the left side. He's the right side. Oh no. It's like, they're kind of divided. They're supposed yes. to, supposed to complement each other, but they're divided. And oh no, is, isn't really a good way to end the topic. <laughs> oh, no. Right. So it's, it might be that childish kind of like naivety that he kind of writes with uh, just kind of being like simply putting it just why is why we're not working out oh, oh no you know this isn't you're going one way i'm going the other but um yeah but i don't know overall a really great song and and this song has been covered by a lot of people i guess it's one of their more popular songs yeah i mean it's got that heavy riff and that what that easily locked people into it uh the trinary system was played and i've done it solo before and uh but so like this song as we were saying was uh, is a popular song uh and it's been covered a lot Obviously, you've done your own covers of it yourself. Um, I was curious, though, how many times has uh, has Burma been covered that you know of? Any 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 uh, recording covers, recorded covers? Many. Uh, Graham Coxon from the band Blur, uh-huh. Fame and Fortune and Revolver on one of his albums. Uh, a local band, I can't remember what they're called now, did Active in the Yard, very obscure Mr. Burma song. Uh, Tommy Keane did Einstein's Day. Lots of people have done Academy. REMs have done Academy fight song. Mm. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I can't. Yeah, you can't recall exactly. That that's okay. Um, but what what is that like for you to to hear these bands, especially that pedigree of names that you've just mentioned, uh, covering your music? That's pretty cool. Um, usually, what I note is that we would hardly ever play regular chords. <laughs> like if there was a way to make the chords slightly different, we would do that. Both Clint and I, especially in the first phase, because Pete only started writing later on. Uh, and almost all my chords are unorthodox and half of Clint's chords are unorthodox. And when people would cover our songs, they would straighten the chord out. So it would be, instead of being this A927, it would be an A major with a, you know, something else. And so mm-hmm. it they would often straighten the straighten the, the chords out. Now I'm always the most impressed when people do don't do very much of that. Like, oh, they really they really got excited if they don't straighten it out. Right. They somehow managed to figure out what you were playing. Really listen. Like I was staying at uh, REM was big Burma fans, and when I was in Birdsong's the Mesozoic, we'd stay with Stipe and sometimes Peter Buck. And I remember one time staying with Peter Buck, and he goes damn it, Roger, I'm trying to learn how to play Academy Fight Song and I can't do it. And I said, well, it's Clint's song, but he tuned the top two strings down. So the E is tuned down to a D and the B is down to a B flat. So the top is a G minor chord. And he goes, wow. And then, of course, I showed him the riff and he immediately got it. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he should have been able to hear by the fact that the strings were droning, like they never stopped. And they're just going, they're sitting there shimmering through the entire damn song. Yeah. There must be a reason why how they're doing that. So as far as I'm concerned, he should have been able to figure out that the strings were detuned. But, you know, uh-huh. he's a nice guy. He was really nice to us, and I, so I'm not going to complain. Yeah, right. Well, that's pretty interesting, though. I mean, that that's just one of those things, though. It's like I, I, I don't have a sophisticated ear. I can't, I can't figure this stuff out. I can barely even figure out a regular song, like a normal kind of tuned song. I mean, that's the thing. Almost all Burm songs are peculiar. At heart, they're unorthodox. Right. That's cool. I like that. Um, Let's move on to the next song. 
Matilda Mother. Again, that's like you're late at night and you're stoned, and the, the chords seem to be coming out of the clouds, you know, like because it's it's such a psychedelic era. So yeah. it still sounds great to me, and I'm not, I hardly smoke weed at all. Uh, again, I mean, here's the childhood element, but it, instead of just like talking about fairy tales, he's talking about you know, it seems to be he's talking about his mother reading them to him when he was little, but then why aren't you still doing it, like? Uh, it's kind of almost it's like a, just a yearning for childhood in, in that respect. You know, like, yeah. I mean, I, that's pretty obvious, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I that's kind of what I learned doing the research. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily hear it as I was listening to the music. But um, yeah, just as you're saying, um, kind of the, the lyrics quote fragments of fairy tales as read from a book to the singer by his mother, mm-hmm. uh, reading the scribbly black, referring to the writing in a book as a child sees it. And the, the idea of the scribbly black and everything shines. Mm-hmm. Fucking brilliant. That's like just the, those two, the little couplet there, whatever it is. You know, it's black and it shines. How could that be? Like, scribbly black and everything shines. It's, you know, it's transforming right. the darkness into the brightness, you know, the back and the back and forth. Right. Or the way that he interprets it as he's hearing these words read yeah. by his mother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. And, you know, we all know that he was, he really liked, you know, like the Brit English whimsy, like Lewis Carroll, which I also, when I was in fourth grade, I read, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, and I worked out the chess, you know, the chess moves of Through the Looking Glass, and I found the one that was screwed up, and then I found out later that, yes, that is screwed up. There's one move that doesn't really exist, and I was, I, I always liked that kind of stuff, so again, Barrett's sense of nonsense, kind of child, childish play, mm-hmm. but, but, of sophisticated childish play because you know Lewis Carroll is not just a little kid you know like through the looking glass is a masterpiece of, uh, right yeah uh, so uh Matilda Mother represents a common theme in Barrett's work uh as you were already kind of like discussing his nostalgia for childhood and awareness that it could not be regained right um would you say you have any common themes you rest heavily on in your music uh, probably Nothing that jumps out at you, though. Nothing that uh, seems pretty evident. No, but I mean, uh, like in in Bermuday, like the song Fun World, you know, when you are young, they kick you in the head. And when you grow up, they're still fucking with your head. So when I when I found out, this is a pretty good line. I, I actually, they're good lyrics here. When I found out what it was I didn't want, I got new armor and I started to hunt. Like that's that's a pretty good couplet. That's a Barrett-esque, almost a Barrett-esque couplet, but a little more, a little darker, and a little more punk rock. If mm-hmm. Barrett had been a punk sure. rock instead of a psychedelic, you know, look at the flowers. It's more like you know, I'm I'm in the back of a gutter. So, right. So that the idea of resisting that which is trying to control you and and you know, tell the world to fuck off. I, I would say those are those are kind of a those that is that is some of the theme. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously not all you write about, but that's just some something that sticks in your mind that uh, that is uh, 
I mean, even, yeah, even in the song Modular Life, I won't stand in line for something that I really do not want. You know, that's that one of the lines in it. It's like, yeah, you know, you trying to tell me that's what I want. Well, fuck you. I'm not doing that. You know, right. But so non like, nonconformity in general, I suppose. And that I consider that to be an asset. Right. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that. Um, so considering what I just mentioned to you about Sid and the seeming obsession with childhood innocence and nostalgia for it, can can you see anything from your childhood that may have been inspirational or thought-provoking in a way? Well, yeah. I mean, really the most profound thing about my childhood was that literally every summer between my age of two and 18, I think I mentioned my father studied fish that live in the desert. You're right. We go to the desert. <laughs> in the summer, we drive out, you know, we go to meetings, the ichthyologists and herpetologist meetings, and then we go out to like Nevada, Arizona, Utah, and we'd just be in the middle of the desert, like nowhere. We'd just pull off to the side of the road, kick out the rocks, throw down our tarps, and pull out our sleeping bags. And if it rained, you pulled the tarp over you, and all you saw was the stars over your head. Yeah. Uh, that, that I think, really uh, profoundly influenced me in that we're just like, a, well, there, was, there was five kids in my family, and we're pretty... I always thought my family was super dysfunctional until I grew up, until I realized compared to other people, it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> I mean, family, I mean, you, you may have a perfect family. I'm not saying you don't. Oh, I don't. <laughs> nobody does. But I thought it was so dysfunctional. Now I realize it wasn't nearly as dysfunctional as I thought. And I'm still tight with my brothers and, you know, my, my family always got along after, after a certain point after like the psychedelia left and I found my own voice, I could come back on my own terms and it was, it was pretty good. Right. Um, so we would have, we'd be like a self-contained family group in the desert. We'd go out there with water and food for like a week. We wouldn't see anybody for a week. Maybe some students would be helping us collect fish. You know, every, all the food was cooked over uh, Coleman and, you know, at night while mom was cooking, we'd be running around the sagebrush looking out for rattlesnakes and stuff. So that kind of, uh, self-reliance and uh rejection of the norm like we didn't stay in motels even you know i think we stayed in one motel the entire time we were out in the desert we just can't and, right. uh, huh. so that that i i really think if there was like one takeaway from my childhood that's the most profound one hmm. okay i like that it's very unique yeah it was sometime around 11th grade i realized you know most families don't go out to the desert looking for fishes every summer. <laughs> it was kind of I started to become more self-aware and I go, oh I, this is you know weird. Huh. That's great. That's not so weird. We also look for fossils too, like fossil fish. So and compare my dad compared the fossils with the living fish. That was the whole thing. So this sense of a trippy duration of time, like millions of years. We we're talking about right. the research was millions of years. So astronomy domine you know, you'll see the stars they are millions of years away. It's actually not that distant. Yeah. Yeah. It's very crazy stuff. Um, so the next song was flaming. I don't have anything for that song. I found it very difficult to, to figure out or not even, you know, research wise, or I couldn't find very much uh, about it. So then the song after flaming is the, uh, how do you pronounce this? Power taught H is spelled differently inside the record also but basically oh. power toke like that's how we perceive it like in 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 detroit 
toking, maybe everywhere, toking is smoking weed. Yeah. And, you know, the MC5, like, let's go to the toke down. So we would call it a toke down when we, when we smoke weed. <laughs> you know, very much like a, a MC5 kind of thing. So power toke. So it was a power toke, basically. And a power toke, from what we knew, was you we'd put the pipe, and then the person would blow on the pipe so that you would, a massive amount of smoke, like four times the normal amount of smoke, would get inside, and you you might be coughing, but you would be suddenly massively stoned. And that was called right. a toke or the, the toke that put you over the edge to get you super high. Oh, okay. So is that how you understand this song as kind of like being that, it's just like being that psychedelic and trippy? Yeah, they were just, and I mean, it's just an instrumental uh, with like two or three themes. Right. In the beginning, it's got the funny vocal stuff. And then there's just kind of a swinging, yeah, it's almost like a, a low-key jazz piano thing with a simple one chord mm-hmm. and it goes into the descending chords and you get the feedback really interesting feedback and stuff in there and then it fades out and there's that new bass theme ding, ding, dong, dong. and so it's just basically three themes that are almost unrelated but they're put together and when it's done they come back with the screaming and the yelling and the feedback and it ties it all together hmm. and that's a very stoned like when Sprung had a lot of songs like that also that seemingly irrational it would start one way very briefly and then it would switch to something completely different which is a very stoned kind of thing if you're stoned your attention will suddenly shift uh but also at that time in like serious music like not necessarily stockhausen but that kind of thing they would do like lots of irrational uh structural shifts in their compositions so there's there's kind of a precedent for it in new music directions, <clears throat> as well as just stoned out rock music. It's somewhere between sure. the two, which suited me just fine. Yeah, yeah. So um, what I learned about this song was that uh, it has been said that it was a conscious effort by the band to produce a sequel to Interstellar Overdrive. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it doesn't tie into anything that I have to say about the song, really, but I just thought that that was some fun little bit of knowledge. Yeah, too. Um, you, you're reading a book I've never read because you're getting all sorts of information. I, I yeah, I, I really do a lot of research on the album and then each song individually and so forth. And, you know, um, I, I do kind of try to read books now when I can, uh, if I have enough time. Oh, I like, love- uh, yeah, I got that that uh, Sid Barrett book. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. I didn't read the whole thing. I didn't have enough time. Yeah, that's, I, I haven't actually read that. You know, I've read biographies of John Cage and Jimi Hendrix, but I've never read, read the Barrett one. So, yeah, I mean, to me, the song, th- that makes sense. Uh, it's a little more, it's, I mean, Interstellar Overdrive is more like a jazz thing. There's the head, then there's the jam, and then there's the head. You know, like at the end, the head comes back. That's yeah. a jazz kind of tradition. Uh Whereas this one, there's more like three completely discrete themes, but they're all, but it's all super loose and improvisatory, you know. Yeah, yeah. See, now I didn't, I didn't know that about yourself. I didn't know like how uh, comfortable you were with the idea of improvisation or or jamming. Even I hate that word. I hate I hate the word jamming, and I hate the connotation of like, hey, let's jam. <laughs> but um, but what are your thoughts on on jamming? Oh, I believe. I mean, again, that that first session that my brothers and I had was all completely freeform improvisation. Right. That was where we found the truth. Uh, and I built some of that into some of the songs. 
from Sprout and Lair. And sometimes I'd use those riffs and compose out of them. But, you know, I believe that, you know, Eric Dolphy's music is every bit as good as Bela Bartok's music. Like jazz is as good as classical music. Mm -hmm. versa. Uh, I did a record with my brother Ben called M2 at Land's Edge. Really, really, I think an excellent album. It's on Feeding Tube. I'm playing prepared piano, like a heavily prepared piano. And my brother Ben is playing a guitar like on a tabletop with pickups on both ends. And it's all freeform improvisation. Uh, hmm. uh, someone who saw us do a performance said they thought it was like the middle section of 1983, A Merman I Shall Turn to Be. Oh, Which that's cool. Like, well, yeah, look, that's a good, you know, never occurred to me until this person said that. But yeah, I mean, it's psychedelia remains in my genes but freeform improvisation and you know I've, I've studied a lot of jazz an album that my brothers and i did called the fourth world quartet 1975 was released last year on cuneiform it's a, basically a jazz record you oh, know, cool. heavily improvised so i right. believe that improvisation is very important yeah and i particularly liked that you said that it's the truth Right, because there, there's you can't. There's no time to build a facade. Yeah, <laughs> like right, I right. build a long structure. I go. I want to go out with a grand ending, and I can like build the five, four, da, da, da. But when you're just jamming with like two or three people, or you know, improvising intuitively, let's hope you might end up with some kind of like amazing turnaround. But it won't be because you've decided it's going to be grand. It's because that's actually what happened. You know? Right. Right. So, that's beautiful. I really like that. All right, well, let's move on to the next song. Uh, Take up thy stethoscope and walk. As you had already mentioned, it's the only uh, Roger Waters song on this record. Yes. It's a... Uh... I mean, it, it's almost not even a song. I mean, it's just that one bass riff, dun 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 dun, dun. <laughs> and then it's got a client. It's got the inverted instead of going down like old Barrett's song. His goes da 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 da. Just goes up, and then da da da. But it's the same riff as dun dun dun. But still, it's a cool song. Yeah. And you know the the sentiment, you know, and the the stops and the starts, and then that those improvisations they kind of peak up and then they come around again. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like good jazz, except for it's a psychedelic rock band. Even if these guys aren't incredible musicians, their uh, in, intuition and interaction, like particularly, uh, you know, Richard Wright and Sid Barrett, the guitar and the keyboards are what just shine on this. It's just this counter effect and there's i remember a good friend of mine who really liked piper the gates of dawn she said the guitar solo on take up that stuff is the ugliest guitar solo she's ever heard in her life <laughs> oh god I, I love it you know like he was just completely abandoning anything he was just making sounds you know right that's yeah. like the, uh, really kind of that's that's what appealed to me i still i still do that I mean, Hendrix was doing it too, but those were the two guys that were doing it in that world. And then, you know, Stockhausen and John Cage was doing it in the other world. And Eric Dolphy and Ornette Coleman was doing it, and Sun Ra were doing it in another world. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I love how that that has kind of developed into a thing, like where where it's not, you know, considered uh, poor playing to to utilize an instrument for whatever sound effect you can get out of it, as opposed to kind of a traditional style right. of playing. Right, right. <clears throat> uh, so take up thy stethoscope and walk. Um, the immediate standout lyrics to me from this are: "Music seems to help the pain, seems to motivate the brain." So I know that music for you has also been a source of quite literal pain, but uh, can you tell me of a time where you saw it as a help? Oh, like lots of times. I mean, this is more recent and it's, and it's almost an absurd, but it, it underlines how music can do it. Trump had just won the election. I was in Rochester, New York. The world, you know, was so terrible. It's just so fucking terrible. And I heard, we're getting coffee. It was with Alloy Orchestra. And uh, the Dave Clark Five came on. It was something like Any Way You Wanted or Bits and Pieces. And mm -hmm. it just like, there's hope, you know? I mean, it's like this ridiculous song. It was just written to be a pop schlock hit. But there was something about it. It made me feel like, well, you know, Trump's president, but I'm not going to die we're going to keep going and we're going to do the best we can. Like it, it gave it, Dave Clark five for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> filled me, filled me with hope. You know? So, <laughs> so that's like a real extreme example. That's not like, you know, listening to Bela Bartok's music for strings, percussion and Celeste and feeling like super profound, which I also do. Sure. But, but you know, the Dave Clark five can do it too. Yeah. I mean, anything can. It just matters of the the situation, which obviously for this situation that you're mentioning was uh, particularly uh, dire feeling. Yeah, context context is everything. Like people say, "What's your favorite song?" And I go, "You know, one I could say like Piper the Gaze of Dawn is my favorite record, but if I put that on one time, it might not be something I want to listen to at all. So, is it now not my favorite record? <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's right. context is everything. Absolutely. Um. All right, so we're going to move on to side two of the record. And the opening track is Interstellar Overdrive. somewhere that and maybe you've read it too that the way Sid Barrett came up with that riff he was trying to learn the song My Little Red Book by Love yep. here's the riff that's the love song I just got out my little red book the minute that you said it's quite different, and the feel of it is 100%. Right. But uh, well, and I also felt a, a kinship with that because that first band that I was in in 67, we did Little Red Book. Like, that was a song I really, really liked. So, oh, okay. So maybe that's partly why I liked Interstellar over that. Yeah, and, and to, to expound on that story that you were mentioning, from what I, what I did find in my research was that um, I believe it was the producer of this record 
who is that Norman Smith um I guess he was kind of like humming that song or kind of like you know like singing it to himself and that's how Sid heard it and wanted to try to learn what it was and then that's how he kind of like got that riff so it was just the he was learning it through his humming rather than listening to the song and trying to play along with it well that's that's interesting I mean I know that they recorded I mean, they performed Interstellar Overdrive long before they recorded the record. Yeah. But on the other hand, he did record, uh, Norman Smith also recorded Arnold Lane. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he was whistling it during the Arnold Lane sessions. Yeah. And so they would have had to hear Norman Smith singing that a while earlier. But maybe they recorded, uh, you know, Arnold Lane maybe half a year before. I, I don't know. Hmm. I don't remember either. It didn't come up much in my research. Uh, it's I, not on this record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just t- talking from my gut, my gut reaction since I did no research whatsoever. Yeah, it's okay. No, it's a, um, but that's, but yeah, that's kind of what I saw. But mm-hmm. now, so Interstellar Overdrive, uh, now you had told me about your song, uh, Infinity in a Box, off your album, uh, Lights in the Center of Your Head, had actually been kind of directly motivated by this song. Well, when Trinary System started, Mission of Burma was still going. I just wanted to do something. I wanted to have another way to play guitar that wasn't so overtly, like, always on 10, like post-punk, cranked, you know. Right. And and I wanted to get, you know, a Trinary System incorporates more of my entire history of rock music. It's much more overtly psychedelic than Mission of Burma was overtly psychedelic. And it was mostly through Can by us doing You Do Right, that I found that we could do this kind of thing, like by having a, a theme, and then we would improvise off the theme. So I made up the baseline for Infinity in a Box, which literally plays almost continuously for eight minutes, and still the song is interesting, which is, mm-hmm. uh, at least I believe it's interesting. Um, and so... I wanted I wanted that kind of expansive thing, and, you know, Interstellar Overdrive. Even the name Infinity in a Box is kind of it's almost the opposite, but but it's but it's got a kind of a extraterrestrial vibe to it. And yeah. in, in the instrumental, after I go through these chord progressions, which is kind of like the opening theme, but then I actually have lyrics in it, which in, Interstellar Overdrive does not. But then afterwards, we each take a long solo. Like at first it's the bass solo, but he's playing nothing but he's got a harmonizer and it sounds more like an organ than a bass, you know. Mm-hmm. And then or actually the drum solo first. And Larry doesn't like to do drum solos because, but I say you know just do lots of fills, and, and he really got it. And I w- I would accompany him on like little zips and zaps on the guitar, like doing very Barrett esque kind of gestures. So that was kind of we interacted. It wasn't like real strict like you guys are the rhythm section and you're the solos we would you know while while larry was improvising i would improvise with him and help like he would lead somewhere and i would help push it along and then you know it would resolve again and so there's more interaction and then when the uh bass took over we kind of pulled back but still i would do like little scrapes with electronic sounds merging with him and then when i did my solo it was a little more rock steady but still people would do fills and this would bring us back to the theme at the end yeah oh okay now and but now so when you were telling me about that how like this song this song kind of like kind of uh directly influenced that in a way uh i was also kind of considering the guitar playing the guitar uh sound like like everything 
<clears throat> everything from like the trinary system records that I've heard so far seems kind of more tied into Sid Barrett's guitar style and playing on the, from this record. That's cool. I mean, is that, is that, do you, is that fair to say to you or do you think, or. Uh, could be, I, I, I honestly, I thought so much about Sid Barrett and Piper at the Gates of Dawn for so long that I've kind of, I, I've almost like partitioned it off because, mm-hmm. because, uh, I, I idolized it so much that it was getting in the way of my life. And I part, partly during Mission of Burma, where I could get, get over my past, like Mission of Burma was me uh, uh, finding my footing as who I really was. Kind of like, you know, okay, the band I started in 1670, Spron Laird, didn't go anywhere. It just tubed. And then all in the 70s, you couldn't get gigs doing creative music. And then punk rock shows up and then I'm in Mission to Burma. And so like, uh, that was a real major thing. But to do that, I had to deliberately cut some ties mm-hmm. in my mind. Sure. So I cut ties with Ann Arbor. Uh, but I still have lots of friends there. I still love, I love going back now, but I had to deliberately do it to free myself up. That's like the lyric. Uh, I said, my mother's dead. I don't care about it. I said, my father's dead. I don't care about it. We're on the edge of Burma. We're on the edge of Burma. That's the line from the ballad of Johnny Burma. That's like mm-hmm. what I was doing. I was killing my past so that I could live in the present. And then once I stabilized myself, I could go back into the past. Something like, something like that. So at oh, that point, I had kind of deliberately, I don't want to be psychedelic. I stopped smoking pot, you know, it was more like, you know, alcohol and, and, you know, more of a punk rock aesthetic. And I found my footing there. And then, but now with, now that Burma was getting done and we'd made our point, you know, the second round of Burma was long enough to make our point. uh, I could go back with clear conscience, with clear conscience and go back and look at, what Barrett meant to me and all these other kind of things like that. So I was carrying them with me all, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was just more like a subconscious thing. It's not like you kind of like, uh, conscientiously was just like looked to, or even kind of revisited this record before working on anything for the trinary system. Yeah, not at all. I mean, when Burma did astronomy Domine, I tried to play, I got, I would merge Richard Wright's organ parts and the guitar parts together because Clint was playing bass and and Pete was doing the drums, so I had to be both Richard Wright and Sid Barrett. So sometimes I play the organ parts on the guitar or something similar enough, and sometimes a guitar, and sometimes I try to blend the two together. And there was like a deliberate, complete homage to Barrett. Like I just, and I would sing, you know, I'd roll my R's, whatever this he he rolls his R's in there somewhere. I can't remember where it is now. And, uh, you know, I try to sing, like, make my voice sound as Barrett-esque as possible, where I don't do any of that now. But I still carry all those kind of ideas and the idea of making those kind of psychedelic guitar sounds, which now, you know, are more traditional. Lots of people make those sounds. But uh, because I'm now, like, when I got in Burma, I wanted to reject a lot of things to start anew. Now, with Trinary System, I can look back and, and borrow from everything from my entire life. Right. Uh, so, so that's why it's more overtly psychedelic, I would say. Hmm. That's, okay. a little, that's a little meandering of an answer there. No, that's cool. I dig it. Um, let's move on to the next song, uh, The Gnome. I did not want to cover. 
because it's just kind of more of the same childish kind of folklorish but, tales. Well, it is, it is, and but it's very much suited my interest in like uh, the uh, the Wizard of Oz or uh, those some other or you know, Lewis Carroll that whole kind of thing. And he goes, "Ooh, my!" At the end of the song, I had a song uh, in my Maximum Electric piano record. The big industry it's called we don't know why the lyric goes we don't know why it's a direct but almost nobody noticed that but final man uh jeff conley from the liars who's like a, a 60s aficionado he's the only guy he got it right away he knew that was a quote from the gnome <laughs> anyways that's my only yeah otherwise it's kind of a throw almost a throwaway song it's just kind of a you know this yeah. funny woodblock percussion that's not yeah yeah no it definitely has some some character to it and obviously some appeal but um just as far as talking points are concerned it's just like okay yeah grimble grobble got it yeah <laughs> but the the next song chapter 24 this is a, an interesting one Indeed. It's accomplished in six stages, and the I mean, just kind of getting right into it, the, the lyrics uh, opening line appears to be taken from the I Ching, yes. the I Ching's instructions for performing a divination. Yeah, it's chapter, it is chapter 24 called Return. Right. Are you familiar with that that book? Mm-hmm. Quite. Yeah? Do you actually, like, have you ever used it as in practice or? There was a while I used it in practice and then I just realized it wasn't helping me because I was using that as a crutch. And so, mm-hmm. but it's, but so afterwards, I once read the I Ching from start to finish without using it as divination, just as as a, as a collection of information on the human condition. It's, it's an astounding book, the way that it describes how water works and how that relates to human uh, interactions and stuff. It's like, it's, it's astoundingly fascinating. And here's, you know, it's a little embarrassing to admit, but there was a period where I was, you know, I was using the I Ching too much, trying to make decisions about this and that. You know, I still, I managed to live pretty pretty well. And I was just really pissed off. And I said, okay, I Ching, if you're going to tell me one thing, just tell that to me now. So I was really pissed off that I wasn't understanding what I was supposed to do. And I threw the three pennies three times. You don't know the I Ching probably, but... No, not really. I've heard about it a little bit. And I've heard about this, the throwing throwing the pennies thing. If there's... One head and two tails, it's a strong line. Basically, the strong lines are yin or yang, male. The weak lines are yin, female, and they're both equally valuable. Uh, and the when it's all uh, weak lines, it's yin, the receptive. You just receive information. And I threw the I Ching, and it was six unbroken lines and what that is it's called the hexagram is the creative and that's where you create and you make the world it's it's me creating things that's where i derive my meaning out mm-hmm. of life. and that's you know pretty obvious that's what i've done all my life and right. so i did this teaching and i was so pissed off and it gave me the creative it, and the odds of that were very very low and so i was just like what the fuck 
you know, you're messing with my mind. And so <laughs> I, I didn't deal with it. I, after that, I just kind of let it sit for a long, long time. But it's, it's a uh, very interesting book. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, using it on a regular basis for trying to solve your problems is not a good idea. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's kind of like anything, really. I mean, it's like, uh, like from what I understood of the I Ching, it, it kind of seemed like a religious thing to me. Like people could use it in a sense, like as as that kind of a a, a crutch to 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 rest on uh, in a spiritual sense, you know, kind of looking for guidance, looking for direction. Is that that's true? Yes, it, it is. Like, it, well, it's basically you're deferring responsibility. And I, I no longer agree with that whatsoever. I think it's better to be responsible to yourself. Like you're saying, yeah. well, you tell me what to do. <laughs> no, you have to figure it out. But I will say this. This is really, really incredibly interesting. My mom, who was not a mystic in the slightest, my, my dad was trying to finish this book, um, of course, Fishes of Mexico and Guatemala. And he was having trouble finishing it. And so she said, okay, Roger, will you this I Ching business help me out. I'm going to throw the I Ching and you interpret it for me. I said, okay. And she didn't tell me what the question was. I had no idea what she was asking. She threw the I Ching and I, I knew how to read the book. And I explained, I read the book and what the lines meant. And, and when it was done, she said, but I am already doing all that. And I said, well, then you're doing it. You know, like, <laughs> obviously this was, you know, it wasn't like, what kind of gibberish is this? Or, you know, what is this even talking about? It was, this is what I'm already doing. And I, I thought that was kind of a profound, a profound moment. Like it, you can't, maybe it would, the answer is you're doing the best you can mom, to help dad finish this book. Or maybe, you know, like you really, it's maybe more attuned to things than you think. You know? Right. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, I will say that in my band, No Man, which was not good, but I wrote at my album, Whamon Express, I had a, wrote a song called Oppression, which is a I Ching hexagram. And I used, it's more of a heavy rock song, but I, just like chapter 24, I used all lyrics from the I Ching. It was a direct, uh, direct response to chapter 24. I wrote mm. Oppression. Yeah, the superior man stakes his life on following his will. That's that's the message of the I Ching. Right. Okay. But go on. So this is quite a, you triggered quite a meandering. Uh... No, that's okay. I mean, uh, that, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm looking for in this show is like, I'm trying to, trying to dig into these little nooks and crannies of, uh, of another person's mind through music. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then this thing specifically, I mean, like I, I knew going into it, it's like, okay, wait, I have to read, I have to figure out more about the I Ching, which I've heard about in the past, so it was kind of interesting, like, uh, you know, section for me to kind of like do a little bit of research that I've already kind of been meaning to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. So the I Ching, it's a, a loose description of what that chapter has to do with is sometimes we need to stop and go back. Uh, this can arise when we have taken an improper course or the wrong path and need to return to where we started. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times we get we can get so far away from who we really are that return is ne- necessary to reconnect with the core part of us that has remained unchanged over time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, with this description in mind, uh, what was the circumstance of the Burma reunion? Oh. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to go that direction. I was the the person that somebody wanted to put on a show at the Avery Fisher Hall at the Lincoln Center in New York City, in Yola Tango, and they said, you know, Burma hadn't, this was 2000, 
one. Burma hadn't played since 83. And they said, we want Burma to play. They, I was the guy they talked to. And I, I was just going to tell them, we're not going to do it. And I said, well, that's, I should at least ask the other guys. And of course, they're going to say, we're not going to do it. Because people have asked this many times before. I think, you know, we're not going to do this. But do you want to do, you know, this guy's asking about a Burma reunion. He goes, yeah, let's do it. I go, what? Like, you want to do a Burma reunion? He goes, yeah, yeah, that would be really fun. I go, okay, well, Pete, hopefully Pete will say no. And Pete said, yeah, let's do it. Because his group had just broken up, peer group. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, I couldn't do anything about it. I had to, I mean, okay, that's the way Burma works. If two people want to do it, you do it. And so right. Burma, we're going to just play like a few shows. You're going to play one show in Boston and one show in New York, which became four shows in Boston, four sold out shows in Boston, two sold out shows in New York City. And then someone asked us, Bob Weston, who was doing our tape loops, Shellac was playing Ultimo's parties in London, you know, one of those festivals. Right. And we'd never played Europe. So, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that one too. And then we started, you know, we'd all written one song because that was a rule. We had to have one new song because we didn't want to just uh, be hauling out the old warhouse horses. We want to act as if we're a band. Right. So even for those first shows, we all had one new song. And then by the time we got to ATP, I think we had another new song. And then all of a sudden we realized, oh my God, you know, we're still rehearsing. We're learning new songs and we have, we could play, you know, we could play the Fillmore and the West Coast. And then we just didn't stop for a long time. Yeah. It was a complete accident. Uh, you know, like almost everything Burma did. Just we stumbled along. Right. Uh, they made the documentary, uh, not a photograph. They made the documentary based on the fact that we we're just going to play a few shows and then stop. And the fact that we kept playing Kabuli destroyed the documentary because there was no ending. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of good. Uh, right. So that's that's how it happened, and it just kept going until the end. Uh, and at the end, I was the only one writing. And I go, you know, I'm going to stop writing if you guys don't write. And and they didn't write. So I said, I think we should stop. Because if we're not all writing, we're not a living entity. You know, unless unless you want to record an album of all my songs. And they go, well, we can't do that. That wouldn't be a Burma record. Well, if you're not writing, then I'm going to stop. And we should probably stop. And then we molded over this way and that. And we all kind of realized, okay, yeah. Hmm. It's like we're. It's time for us to stop. Yeah, it was. It was kind of an accident. Yeah, and it had gone on for so long. I mean, like I remember talking to Pete about it, and he was just like, "Yeah, what was supposed to be just a kind of a few shows ended up being what twelve years was it? So, something like that." Yeah, so it was just like twice to three times as long as your original start. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's cool, though. I mean, like uh, that you actually got to make some new music out of it and put out some new records and, and so forth and obviously reap the benefit of being heralded as a, as an influential punk band, you know, one of one of the one of the originals, really. Yeah, po post-punk. Uh, and it's funny because I, I was in the group called the Alloy Orchestra, now the Anvil Orchestra, that does silent film accompaniment. And I remember we played the Telluride Film Festival in 1998. And, you know, and I was a new guy in the band and I, I was I was name dropping Mission of Burma, hoping that someone would think I was cool. And nobody had ever heard of Mission of Burma. But right. like three years later in 2002 or four years later, 
I could go to Telluride and people knew who Mishnah Burma was. Like this really, the fact that we reformed lifted us literally from out of the distant mud into the, you know, into the, into the light. Was like yeah. That. And two of the records are really good. They're Blitterati and yeah. they're both, I think, really good records. They have a lot of ideas on them. I think so. Yeah. I just listened to those recently. Yeah. Yeah. People would say that it was like, you know, we folded in 83 and they, it was as if, you know, 83, 2002 was just, we're just continuing from the same place. You know, we had the same repertoire, except for we had a couple of new songs and then we added more new songs, you know, as if all those years in between hadn't happened. Yeah. Something like that. You know, that was, that was a joke. <laughs> There's a space time continuum break. <laughs> you know, definitely was infinity in a box as it were. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the next song, the scarecrow. The black and green scarecrow, as everyone knows, stood with a bird on his hat and straw everywhere he didn't care. He stood in a field where barley grows. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, very Wizard of, wizard of Oz. In, in oh, yeah. Format. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that. Um, but uh, there's certainly, you know, uh, the song contains nascent existentialist themes uh, as Barrett compares his own existence to that of the Scarecrow, who, while quote-unquote sadder, uh, is also quote-unquote resigned to his fate. Life's not unkind, he doesn't mind. Mm-hmm. Was, right, right. Yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not that bad. It's another song that's, you know, kind of similar to, like, the Gnome and... and uh, Maybe right. uh, Matilda Mother, in a sense that they're kind of like flowery, kind of uh, mystical, but uh, resigned to fate kind of sticks with me. It's, it's an interesting concept to to be resigned to fate. And uh, with that being said, I'm curious how trinary system came to be. Um, towards the end of Burma's second existence, Mach Two, I was just getting tired of always playing in this post punk style. And, I, and somebody had asked me, how do you think Burma would play a party? And I go, well, Burma's not going to play your party. You know, we're way too loud. And do you have, you know, are you going to pay us? You know, but I could put together a band and it just didn't happen. I, and then I just got me thinking, yeah, yeah. Like, it'd be fun to play non-post-punk guitar playing. Or, and that's, that is what started Trinary System. Uh, and the fact that I just, that little trigger, like, you know, it wasn't in my first idea until someone asked me to do that, right. to play this party. And I thought, yeah, that would be cool to play a different style of guitar playing and which would inherently draw back on every other style that I'd played. And again, Andrew Willis, the bass player, he had engineered some alloy orchestra recordings and he asked some really interesting questions. He goes, are you playing quarter note triplets there? And which the other two guys in Alloy Orchestra have wouldn't even know what that meant. Like mm-hmm. literally, I'm just saying. And I, though I, you know, I, anyway. And and I thought, well, this guy's really paying the fucking attention here. And then he he offered some technical assistance on some other things. Then he was in this band that had opened up for Shellac and Weston said, Oh yeah, I love those guys. I go, okay, well, here's this guy. He's a guitar player. If I'm going to put a band together, Larry Durst, the drummer in Binary System, my piano and drum duo that made three records, mm-hmm. Larry is like an incredible, incredible drummer. He has 
his feel was really excellent. And I knew I knew he could do anything I wanted. And but I didn't, but Andrew, who I'd never heard play an instrument, but we'd talked about Captain Beefheart, and I'd I'd heard I, I did hear some recording of one that he had done, but I'd never seen him play. And he was a guitar player. So I thought, perfect, he'll be the bass player in my band. Like, you know, and again, okay, in that in that sense, that's what Noel Redding was. Noel Redding was a guitar player, but was forced right. to play bass. But I didn't want someone like Noel Redding to me was a guy who thought, this is how you play bass. A guitar player's view of how you play bass, which is really simplistic and dull. Like I was a bass player when I saw Hendrix play at a club the size of the rat. And I was like, uh, Noel Redding was the least interesting member. The drummer, you know, Mitch Mitchell was incredible, and Hendrix, oh, yeah. the bass player, so dull. Huh. But I knew Andrew Willis would not play like that. Andrew Willis would play like he was a guitar player, and that's what I wanted. He wanted, but he could play the bass. And sometimes I tell him, you know, don't just hang down there, put in some more shit, you know, because he he sometimes lapses into thinking this is what bass players should do. And I'm, yeah, I'm, it's supposed to be rhythm, right? And I'm glad he does. That means he's not like thinking like I'm going to be a guitar player and I'm going to like kick your ass and everybody's ass. But he's such a he's such an intuitive musician, and all I have to do is say, yeah, "Do a little more than it, okay?" And then it then it shows up, you know. And he comes up with his riffs. Mm. I come up with some pretty oddball riffs, and he comes up with counterpoint oddball riffs. They're like, "Wow!" And then once Larry gets the groove down. So that's that's how the band started. We started out being just a bunch of songs that I cobbled together of my own. Like we did Lucifer Sam, we did the Sprint Lair song in the Sun, this and that. I don't think we ever did any Burma songs. We later did uh, She Said She Said, which was pretty good. Mm-hmm. That was cool. good. And uh, but gradually, when we did the Miles Davis tune, I realized that we could get this heavy groove going and improvise over, uh, like. Andrew locked in with Larry and I could play this freeform guitar and bring out my cornet, do some fake miles, horn blowing. And then they could also improvise too. And that's where it gradually I learned what the band was supposed to do. Like it took me a, quite a while because we hardly ever played. You know, Burma was going on at the same time, hmm. you know, and, you know, you know, we'd play six shows a year. You don't, you, you learn by playing 12 20 or 30 shows a year that's so but we're i think we're really good i think our next record is going to be uh very good yeah cool and uh speaking of that when when where is that at right now the new record um we're recording it at the end of july at guilford sound which is in guilford vermont like it's in the middle of the woods but it's like a world-class studio like yeah astounding I helped them choose the Steinway grand piano they have. I recorded my uh, dream interpretation record there that's coming out in August. I have a record coming out called Eight Dream Interpretations for Solo Electric Guitar Ensemble. Hmm. All all the music is structured by dreams. Hey, Sid Barrett. (laughs) But you'd recognize a little bit of Barrett influence in there. It doesn't sound anything like Beverly Gates. but some of the psychedelic elements but that's where we're recording primary system is going to record at the same studio i love the engineers completely cool guys there and we're these two shows upcoming we're breaking a lot of new material so that we are comfortable with it and know it well enough that we can kind of fuck with it in the studio cool okay yeah so i saw you guys play uh at the middle east upstairs with mssv Hmm. and uh 
that was my first that was my introduction to to your band and uh you guys were excellent uh speaking of larry your drummer uh i thought he was a great great drummer he seemed to have more of a jazz jazz influence is that correct i mean most of the time around town he plays in almost uh like traditional stuff he just does you know, Ringo-esque backbeats behind singer-songwriters and Americana, almost Americana stuff. Hmm. But when he plays with me, anybody who plays with me is going to be pushing the limit just by the nature of it. Um, it's, it's funny. I don't think of him as being jazzy, but that could very well be the case. That, that's that's interesting. He's, oh, okay. he, his feel is, is, really, uh, is really good. Like, I remember playing a show we played two shows in a row once. I try. I like playing two shows in a row because it really breaks in the two song, new songs, two shows right in a row. And one night, these uh, we were playing at Johnny D's in Boston, and these you know Eastern European girls came up and said, "Your bass player, he is fantastic." And I'm going, "But you know, I'm Roger Miller, you know." And your bass player, he is fantastic. Can you and us do introduce us to your bass player? Well, here's Andrew. And the next night, a guy came up with, "God, your drummer is incredible." I go, "Come on, man! I'm Am I doing nothing up here? What? <laughs> what mistakes have I made?" But that makes me feel good. You know, like sometimes that's what people bonded on to. Like you know, there they thought it was the bass player. Here is the drummer. Someplace they think it's the guitar player, whoever the hell he is. Right. And so, so that's what I like. I mean, I I really like whenever I have a band. In almost every band I've been, I've tried to make everybody equal. Like in, like in Burma, like Secrets, it's not a guitar solo; it's a drum solo. Like it's it just Pete's going around bashing on it, and Martin was doing tape loops off it. But drum solo, yeah. And and there's bass. I give bass solos too, you know. And Clint wrote mm-hmm. a lot of bass solos. He, he should have written a little more guitar solo. But uh, so I always think of the band the members as being equal like there's not like you know the idea that one person leads and everybody else follows that just doesn't interest me that's like you know bob dylan or something right i like a lot of bob dylan music but but that's not what i'm looking for i guess in that sense it is more like a jazz ensemble where you really notice everybody who's playing right yeah yeah i mean your band is great i mean uh andrew and and larry both like just uh, obviously astute uh, musicians and like can keep up with the weirdness that you're doing. So yeah, they, they gotta be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If they can't take it, they would be out of there. They, they wouldn't have gone there in the first place. You know? Right. Right. So now uh, I have a couple more things for you. A couple more questions uh, before we, uh, one question before we get to the last song though. Um, one thing I, I kind of just would like to know about was that uh, do, do you think most of your fans like from back in the, the Burma days, thought that you ended your career when you stepped away from Burma due to your tinnitus? The thing that I stepped into after that was Bird Songs of the Mesozoic, which was like keyboards, almost minimalist. And I have some mixed feelings about some of that, but some of it was really good. Uh, you know, we did some really, some really cool shit. But people that, a lot of people that like my work in Burma were like, what the hell are you doing, Roger? This keyboard shit. But that was the beginning of it. And then I'd go back to guitar and then keyboard and then the more jazzy and this and that and then the guitar. And then pretty soon now everybody's going, okay, I like this part of what Roger does and this part. And But he's a really interesting guy, so I'll come see him here. And, you know, it's no longer I fell off a cliff and went into Birdsong of the Mesozoic. It's now more like 
well, of course, the next record he's going to do has nothing to do with the other band that he's in. You know, like my other band, I'm playing prepared piano. This one, I'm playing electric guitar. This one, I'm writing music for string quartet with with two turntables, you know, or I'm right. doing silent film accompaniment. People are now used to it, and no one now thinks I have destroyed my life and ruined their Yeah, well, I mean, you're obviously, I mean, maybe that's what, uh fans initially from like the early period of Burma didn't know about you was that you actually have this uh ability to um just kind of make any type of music and obviously that's what you want to do you're you're willing to challenge yourself and to create just about anything right yeah pretty much I mean I'm I've been writing a lot of even solo piano music recently and then the problem is I started thinking oh I should make a solo piano album it's like no, no, Roger, stop. you got to finish the Trinary System record first. You have the eight dream interpretations for solo electric guitar coming out, and you're touring with the Anvil Orchestra. And you, I, I also have art installation. It's, it's now going to the second art museum, the 3S Art Space in oh, cool. New Hampshire, which is my modified vinyl where I play games with records. Uh, the first one... I made in 1986 and it was reviewed in 88. Do you know the artist Christian Markley? No, I can't say I do. He's rather huge, like the Tate Museum, if you know that kind of stuff. He's had major retrospectives there. And he's he made records, record without a cover was one of his first things. And the idea was that you'd never put a cover on and get more scratches. I made at the same time before that, because I didn't know he was doing that. I made a record out of nothing but record noise. So I recorded my record collection, but only the spaces before and after the music. So you'd get various types of pops. Mm-hmm. And then I had 12 minutes of that cut to an acetate. And then every time you play the acetate, which wears away quickly, old pops wear away because the record wears away and new ones appear. So. Right you have a record that is constantly evolving and never gets any worse. Yeah. Right. That was my first thing, pop record evolving. Uh, and that's what kind of, that's one of the records that's in my modified vinyl. Another one is the, you know, the signals calls and marches lyric sheet. Yeah. No, I, I don't know it. Cause I've never, I've never had it on co- a copy of it. The, the lyric sheet was, uh, this is a, a classic Burma thing, but uh, the lyric sheet was all the lyrics in alphabetical order. So the first lyric was ah, that's like ah in red or something. And the last one was you, probably. I don't think we had any Z words. You showed up. And it was up to me to listen to all the songs. I wrote, there's five songs with lyrics. I wrote four of them. And then Clint wouldn't tell me the lyrics to Revolver, so I had to listen to it. And so, so then I would get all, all of them, and then I would put them in alphabetical order. And then I had Holly, who was doing our album cover, she made a lyric sheet. And the lyric sheet was the lyrics listed in alphabetical order. Oh, wow. Because lyric sheets were really popular. So here, here was our version of a lyric sheet, kind of a da-da error. And so for one of my modified vinyls is, you know, those are all the lyrics that are on the record. And then I had those lyrics etched onto vinyl, like with the, this inking process that Third Man Records does. Mm-hmm. So now all the lyrics that are on the record are actually on the record. You know, it's, it's all, it's games of that ilk. Uh, okay. The conceptual stuff. Another one I'm working on now is I'm drawing with sound. So if you have a blank record, there's nothing on it. But if you put a, re- a record at 33 and a third revolves every 1.8 seconds, 
So if you put a really loud record pop, and I have lots of sampled sounds, every 1.8 seconds for 20 minutes, you will be able to see on the record a straight line going from the edge to the center. Uh-huh. And after that, I've, I've made geometric shapes by doing mathematical equations and uh, extending and shortening the sounds before and afterwards. So this one's called Audio Visual Audio, where I take audio to create a visual, and then you can play it and listen to it again and to hear how the visual translates back to audio. Yeah. So it's, oh. it's, it's stuff like that. Uh, that's part of, my mod part of my art installation. Oh, wow. That sounds really cool, man. So what, when, when is that going to be available to see? Uh, it was at the Brattleboro Art Museum exactly when COVID hit. So, oh, okay. But it, the, the virtual gallery is actually on my website somewhere if you go to the conceptual art pages. But it will be at 3S Art Space in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, towards the end of November through the middle of January. Oh, June. okay. It'll be up on the wall. And each one of them has something on the wall to look at and also a turntable that you listen to with headphones so you'll listen to the pop record evolving or, or you'll listen you'll that, that's what it is that's what's funny about this you see the signals calls and marches lyrics printed on the record on the wall but in on the record that you listen to which is a seven inch i isolated every one of those words so it goes ah around oh, scream you know, they're all just completely isolated and they're they're back to back and they they make some interesting uh it's kind of hard to listen to in some ways, but particularly if you know the record at all, it's a real mind fuck. Sure. Yeah. Sounds it. So that's what so you have something to play the record to with headphones, and then there's something to list, look at also for each one of these uh modified vinyl pieces. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. That's a good time frame. It's it's like when we when the family takes the road trips anyway. So we'll, we'll probably make it up to New Hampshire. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'm doing the guitar my guitar show. I think December second at that venue. The uh, Dream Interpretations, eight Dream Interpretations for solo electric guitar ensemble. Where I have three lap steel guitars on legs, and three two of them are prepared like with bolts and alligator clips. Mm -hmm. so they don't. They sound like a John Cage or a Harry Part. Do you know Harry Parts at all? I've never listened to him, but I've been uh, turned on to him recently as far as this, like, uh, I, I do record resale, so I, I, I look out for Harry Parts all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds kind of like that. And the other lap steel over here is all tuned to a unison E, so I get really thick melodies. I play that with a regular slide. And then I also have a strap. And then I have a looping machine, so I can set up these patterns. Boom, ding, 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 in the prepared thing, press a button, that'll repeat. Then I can hit a chord, and then that will come in backwards against that. And then I, you know, anyways, it goes from there until it's very layered up and uh, mm. fairly unorthodox. It becomes a solo electric guitar ensemble, basically. Yeah. Okay. So all structured by dreams. So it's a, it's a pretty, it's going to be a really interesting record, and the performance is very difficult. <laughs> Okay, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. it. Sounds like a uh, very interesting to get to get into. Yeah, it, it's it'll be intense. All right. Well, um, so I only really have one question left for you, uh, based on the last song, "Bike."
What, so there's not much to say about this song. I mean, uh, I've known this song forever. It's very typical, you know, Sid Barrett style. Uh, seems very straight and simple. Um, but I have noticed that you also have a track on your full-length album named Bike. I'm, ass- <laughs> I, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. Bike. Yeah, it's got an exclamation point. <laughs> Mike, Watt played it. Mike Watt played it on his show, and he said, yeah, I thought it was going to be the Barrett song. I said, you didn't see the exclamation point? It's a different song. I mean, originally, it was I was really excited because when I moved to, Bo- to Boston from Quincy, I didn't have a car for eight years. I just rode my bicycle. Yeah. And, and it, when in those days, I was the only bike at the intersection. Like occasionally, there'd be another bike. As, by the time I left Boston, there'd be like five or six bikes at the intersection, and the, the thrill was gone. But it was really, I really liked riding a bike. I liked physical activity, and it was super cost effective. You know, it doesn't cost anything. You can park anywhere. Right. You know, it was just really, really fun, and it made you healthier, too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I used to do a lot of biking myself. Uh, I don't really have a good excuse for why I don't anymore, really. <laughs> I just had the excuse I didn't have money to buy a car. And, you know, Boston's a pretty small town, so you can, you know, if it's, the weather's bad, you can take the tea. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, the thing about bike, I mean, it is that kind of cheerful, like, you know, Lewis Carroll, Barrett-esque kind of nonsense. You know, he's just talking about his daily life. You know, he probably did have a little mouse called Jeremy you know and, and but but then he has that bam bam this thing this kind of this irrational chop and it goes now you know it's like that's like you're turning the page or something to a new theme now he's talking about the mouse now he's talking about the house now you know and then right. i've got then it, then but the the clincher of it is the last verse which which slows down you know i've got a room a musical tomb some wine some cheap most of them are clockwork let's go into the other room and make them work and then you hear the steps the door opens and then you hear all these crazy sounds these machine sounds in the other room hmm. uh which is a really kind of you know he's creating a story and then you know he's creating a story with the music uh and and you listen to that end sound <laughs> if you slow it down it's laughter i don't know if they mentioned that yeah <laughs> but by the time it's played it's got this manic and you i just get the senses like that was sid just kind of hanging on at the end there like somewhere around when he finished that song things were starting to go but yeah. maybe not maybe he was in his most chipper state yeah i don't don't know but i did hear about that little little recording trick they did with the the laughter and uh i think they sped it up and that did it backwards maybe even i don't know might have been backwards too might have been backwards too yeah yeah it was but it was weird because it just sounds like you know most people will interpret as like like little duck quack or something like some little kind of like squeak thing but it's yeah it's actually them them laughing right and it only comes in at the end too so it's like it's a compositional element it's like okay here's a new thing and i think it the song comes to an abrupt stop. Is that correct? <laughs> and it stops. I think the last time. I think you might be right. I don't remember it. It's been a while. Well. But it's you know it's not just goofy shit. I mean it's it's you know quirky. It's childish, like you know, let's laugh and speed it up. But but it's actually he's using it as a compositional tool at the end to like signal that you know like we're concluding this room of just like. Uh, you know, like a, a twittering machine. It's a, it's a painting by Paul Clay. It sounds like the soundtrack for Paul Clay's 
painting the Twitter machine. It's just kind of like wind up birds and little mm. dots around. Oh, okay. But but you know that those guys were like really into the sounds that they were making, and it was just like, yeah, yeah. Who who needs a backbeat? Let's just listen to this, you know? Yeah, yeah. They definitely, I mean, have uh, evolved since this record. He's obviously throughout their career into like these master like recorders. Like all of their records always have these like elements that are just like just masterfully done and like in a studio like you just know that they've just have somebody or they themselves are just so intrigued by the studio and like all the the different sounds that they can put together and like meld in one way or another and it's just uh it's always been like really fascinating for me as far as uh their entire catalog is concerned yeah yeah i mean i i kind of lost them towards the like after uh, I mean, echoes. I liked echoes. I thought I thought Gilmore's playing was really good on that. But I mean, there's things on "Wish You Were Here" that I think are amazing. There's too many of those kind of low-key bluesy impro- instrumentals. Like, where's like power tope where they're like just cranked, you know? But, oh, yeah. but still, there's stuff on "Wish You Were Here" that's just like terrifyingly good. Like a couple of songs on you know, the, the title track, that synthesizer patch. And you just like, no, man, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they knew that things were fucked. <laughs> they weren't just making this shit up. Yeah, yeah. So uh, going back to Bike Quickly, uh, I just wanted to ask you if there was any connection between your bike and uh, Pink Floyd's bike. Not really. I think uh, the, the original title for mine, oh, this is why. The song was originally called Airplane Song because... I wrote the entire song on an airplane. Uh, Alloy Orchestra had been on the West Coast for two weeks, and I was on the plane. I go, God, I just want to rock, and I couldn't rock, so I just wrote it all, just imagining the chords and the melodies. When I came home, they all were right, which I was pretty pleased with. So oh, wow. I called it "Airplane Song" because I wrote it on an airplane. And then, but it's it's the song is an inversion of "Walk Don't Run." Walk Don't Run goes, and bike goes, so instead of going up and down, it goes down and up. I was deliberately doing that. It's the same chords as Walk Don't Run also, but instead of going, they go, so it was like, I wanted to write this in honor of, that kind of guitar playing, like mm. transition was just beginning to happen. We might not have even started yet. And uh, so when I came home and, and started to think it needed a title other than airplane song, it's don't walk, don't run, bike. Like instead of walk, don't run, but like I was really into riding my bike. Like I just loved riding my bike. So it was, and then I just shortened it to just bike. I realized then that of course, that reference the Barrett song, but that, that's how it got there. There's no direct correlation other than any time I can make any connection with Barrett, it makes me kind of happy about it. You know? Right. All right. Cool. Um, so well, that that's it. That concludes the record. We are we are done with uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Whew. I'm, I just gotta say I'm relieved. This this record was freaking me out for a little while. How so? Well, it's just, uh, it's, uh, you know, Pink Floyd is one of those bands, just, you know, massive, monumental, has so many fans that, you know, read into them and, you know, live their lives based on songs and so forth. You know, it's just, <clears throat> and then this record, I mean, it's a tough record. It's, um, 
it's the only one in their catalog that's really like like this one you know and i and that's obviously based on on the sid barrett influence because this is uh, a heavy sid barrett record compared to every other one because he was gone for every other one mm-hmm. so yeah and it's i mean but you can even feel like you know even the beats on loose for sam or you know power toke or th- like the drumming you know dum, 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 or astronomy dominates or even at the end of interstellar overdrive he just starts up again like that 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 we didn't talk about that but it's like that is such a peculiar thing to end it with that like mm-hmm. once barrett's detuned his guitar string down to the and then there's just suddenly this peppy little drum beat and it's as if like oh yeah and now we're going back to life as normal like after that kind of kind of a vibe yeah. but I mean, there are people that only that believe that that and Sauce Full of Secrets and maybe Magoom are the only really important Pink Floyd records. And I'm, I am one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually, I, I don't completely agree with that because I think Wishing We're Here is, is brilliant. I didn't, I didn't like Dark Side of the Moon, though I did see the concert. Really good makeout music. I was stoned with my girlfriend, the, the slow, dreamy music, so perfect for making out. I didn't think oh, yeah. the band, but they had a really good band. Uh, yeah but definitely with barrett there was it was a little more high energy and witty and it wasn't as dark i mean even though barrett had a lot of dark elements to it right but even you see there's a a song i i I think barrett was still in the band at the time i saw i heard of them doing uh somewhere in a european tour it might have been just when gilmore joined and and waters had written a song called one in a million like you're one in a million but it's like very sarcastic and cutting like you know like his next song which was corporal clegg which is a brutal takedown of i think his dad or something oh yeah you know like just well this guy's this guy's got a you know a bone to spur or whatever it is a bone over someone said i can't remember the phrase right which like led into his whole obsession with the the military and obviously losing his father in the war and whatever yeah. trauma he's gone through through for you know with that right right and whereas whereas barrett was more like you know whimsical a little lighter but the, interestingly the music was more energetic mm-hmm. you know? and everybody played faster like even nick mason was playing like really peppy peppy beats and after sauce full secrets was all that super slow languid kind of slightly tripped out and right. i saw them on every tour like after Sauce Full of Secrets, they saw the Umaguma tour, all the tours up through Dark Side of the Moon. I saw every single tour except for the Piper of the Cave Dawn tour. Oh, and wow. They were, they were good in all those all this shows. Yeah, yeah. They kind of grew up. I think that's that's the what I've heard about it is this like the, the band was essentially a group of professors, and like Sid was like the one, like kind of counterpoint. He was the one that was, you know, obviously more uh whimsical because he had the the childish influence over him you know he was more um he was kind of just more giddy i guess in a sense in a way but if you hear interviews he's the least talkative of any of them like he's really quiet right uh, you know with what there's an interview in canada and waters is like you know kind of dominating the whole thing and everything he says is really strong and barrett's going well we don't really try to play loud you know, stuff like that. It's like, okay, Sid, whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, um, so tell me about the show that you guys are going to be doing um, because you're going to be in Providence on the 24th of June. Yeah, at dusk. Uh, I know we're playing with uh, Mini Beast, uh, quite obviously. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I don't know the other bands. Uh, Department of Teleportation. It sounds about right. Infinity in a Box, Interstellar Overdrive, Department of Teleportation. It's all, <laughs> all coming together. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. You know, I haven't played Providence with Trinary System for a while, and uh, yeah, it's always fun to play with many bass. And then I, yeah, as I said, I sit in with them on cornet, and if they want me to play guitar, whatever you want me to do, we'll do it. So, what, what, are you planning on doing an, <clears throat> another Pink Floyd song uh, this time around too? No, not, no. not But if, if Pete says, "Okay, Roger." We want you to sit in with this, you know, with bike. Okay, sure. <laughs> I'll sit in. I'll make the funny songs. Yeah. All right. And then uh, and then the following evening, you're playing in Boston again, is it? Yeah, we're playing at uh, The Jungle, which is in Somerville. We're headlining that one. Uh, the band before us is Landowner. They're from Pioneer Valley area. They are my favorite. I love Mini Bees too, but Landowner just fucking blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, they're like the super taut. God, I, I can't explain it. Somewhere between Captain Beefheart and the Minutemen, the lyrics are all uh, like weirdly political, but not overtly political. And yet they're delivered in such a peculiar fashion. And yet it's so convincing. Mm. It's, it's, it's stuff that I would never have occurred to me to do. And that always fascinates me. Like, huh. interesting. I, I, Landowner, I just, I adore that band. I think they're just utterly fantastic. And then the, the other band, Wrong. Uh, I've just heard Andrew Willis found them. Uh, they're very noisy in a more regularly noisy way, but really, you know, I would say Captain Beefheart elements in there too, the way their song structures are chopped up. I am expecting them to be really interesting. Land Odor isn't noisy so much as super taut. Uh, and then we're somewhere, we're like, our noise is a little more casual, more psychedelic, I guess. Right. Cool. All right. Well, hey, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you there because I, I will definitely be there at oh. the Providence show at least. Cool. And uh, and it's been a wonderful time talking with you uh, about this really particular and uh, important record. Thanks. Thanks very much. Well, yeah, it's been a pleasure pleasure talking. Uh, yeah. I didn't want to take too much of your time. I mean, I, I know that I was trying to. I know two hours seemed like a lot for you. You know, once I got my double IPA, and literally I've only had just a little over half the beer, but that that made time flow yeah so, there you go i forgot about time entirely just, oh and also once you still talk about Michael brigades of dawn and this kind of stuff and you conjure up all those memories you know time is fluid sure that can even be a little irrelevant at times cool. all right roger well hey you have a good night thanks again oh, for doing this totally my pleasure and uh good to be in touch absolutely i'll see you uh, 24th Sounds good. Final Vision is a second step for that.